p.m. on Tuesday, March 5, 1963, a Piper Comanche airplane crashed into the hills of Tennessee. The plane crash tragically cut short the life of a 30-year-old female country pioneer whose magnificent vocal range broke new ground by becoming the first female country artist to cross over into the pop charts. Hello, Rocco Babies. Hello. So, Michelle and I are sitting here drinking a delicious, delicious drink liqueur named Amaro Angelino. And it's very, very deliciously bitter and sweet, just like the artist we're about to talk oh, about. Oh, I know. So, here we go, Rocco Babies. On. Cheers, Rocco Babies. Cheers. Welcome, Rocka Babies. Hello. I'm excited about this one. I say that about everyone, but she has a special, special place in my heart. Um, but she is a trailblazer in all respects. I, I don't know. I mean, we were talking about her, and um, but we're just going to get right straight to it. Mm -hmm. We're going to get right straight to it. And the quotes that that we found this week to really encompass Miss um, Virginia Patterson Henley, better known as Patsy Klein. Oh, Patsy. Um, we're actually I, two. I should say I found two that that we that we're gonna talk about. And the first one really embodied her because it said, uh, and it's by Hugh Hefner. And Hugh Hefner huh. said, life is too short to be living somebody else's dream. Maybe I should have mm -hmm. said that secondary. Um, and we'll talk about why in two seconds. And then the second quote that I thought really encompassed her is um, it's a, a quote that's a popular quote attributed to Ayn Rand. And it says, the question isn't who is going to let me, it's who's going to stop me. And it was about <sighs> the hero of her novel. And you know what? Patsy was a hero mm -hmm. of her she own novel. Was. She definitely was. You know, it's um, it's going to be heartbreaking at times, but we're, we're going to get through it. I'm going to try not to shed too many tears here. Like all of them, though. I mean, everyone I we talk about, it's just these amazing quick lives. I know. I know. God, I know. I mean, because, but the wonderful thing is, most of the people that we've covered so far have been so confident in their abilities, mostly all of them probably that we're going to do. I think if you really get to be at the place that these guys yeah. are, and there are people probably listening now that are confident in their abilities, you know, like yourself, you're really talented, Michelle. And um, it speaks to like just having confidence in what you know. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get into Patsy's um, life. But... Um, you know, Virginia Patterson Hensley, Jenny, 
was born on September 8, 1932 in Gore, Virginia, right next to Winchester, which is where she would eventually live. Mm -hmm. And her dad's name was Sam, and he was 43, and her mom was like 16 years old when they gave birth what? to her. Yes. Yes. 43 and 16. Yes, I know. He, oh, I knew there was an age difference, but that's... I know. Oh, that's a, that's kind of disturbing. They married <laughs> at 13 when she was 13. Oh, this is like... I know. He committed some crimes today. Well, you know, probably. like... Well, you know how I've said in past episodes, I'm like, yeah. well, we can't look at today's... With today's goggles on the past, but right. come on. 13 when 13. No, yes. that's yes. some Jerry Lee Lewis stuff. That's... I know, right? It is some Jerry Lee Lewis stuff. He was his, I know, I, I want to say Woody Allen, but never mind. But Hilda was his second wife. <laughs> that's today's. That's um, today's creep. Yeah, so it is. There's a lot of creeps um, right now, speaking of creeps. <laughs> I know, right? God, we really are we in the times of got a list of, of creeps. I know. He was 43 and... He was 40 and she was 13 when he married her. She was his second wife. His first wife died from pneumonia. So Patsy got two older half, a brother and a sister. Um, and they were raised by a family friend when the mom, when the first wife died of pneumonia. Um, but her, her dad was known as a, a hard drinking, mean, as they call him, son of a gun, or son of a bitch, whatever, you know, hellraiser. <laughs> Um, but she always had a beautiful relationship with her mom, Hilda, you know, and Sam and Hilda would have, you know, Patsy would have two younger siblings named Sam Jr. and uh, Sylvia. And, um, you know, as a child, uh, you know, Jenny, I'll call her Jenny for now, till she becomes Patsy, she idolized Shirley Temple. You know, she tap danced all over the house, her mom said. And her mom entered her just by fluke into like a childhood, like a children's dance competition. And of course, because we're talking about Patsy Klein, she won. She oh, won yeah, the so competition. It was... it was a phase. Like, I'm sure you had, did you have phases when you were younger? Because when you're. Oh, I was always wanting to be in all, every What was show your first that... phase as a kid? Like, phase? she had her phase was through tap dancing and then she went to piano which she didn't stick with well i always i was always singing stuff so everything was just nice a means to be able to sing so wow. i did i was in tap i was in tap and ballet and yeah but i was a huge giant stick with so. it. You just, did you stick with it uh, i was in it a long time but that didn't equate to being good or anything i just yeah. I did. I like tap and I love ballet. Yeah. I have a ballet bar right over there. I know, right? I wasn't. I wasn't a Why good dancer. Why is that thing up against the wall? You gotta bring that no, thing I out and use it. Sometimes I do use it. Sometimes I love, but I love dance. But it just wasn't one of my gifts this lifetime. But I liked oh, it. Nice. So see, she was the same way. She liked the tap dance. Then she went to piano, and but none of those things really lasted long. Mm. Yours lasted long, obviously, if you still got a bar. Yeah, that's that's wall. wishful thinking. It's basically there, so I think I'm a dancer. I'm not. <laughs> well, but I like to believe but you I am. Can practice with that thing. I can look you know. at it. Yes. And yes. put my shoes on and tell myself I'm a dancer. Woo. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which I'm not. <laughs> she did the same thing, but as a child. Um, <laughs> not of adult like you. Oh, <laughs> You're like I, she did the right. same thing, but as a child. As a child, you you, you grown weirdo. But that's good. <laughs> you stuck with it. She didn't stick with the other one of those things. She's like, eh, I got, I did with that. I did with that. But through all of those things, mm -hmm. she always had a fascination with the Grand Ole Opry, and she mm -hmm. 
told everybody. She knew every detail her mom said about every singer that performed at the Grand Ole Opry. She listened to them on the radio, you know, because she was born in 1932. Mm -hmm. So as a child, they were listening to the radio and she'd hear about every singer and knew every detail, which kind of makes me think about myself because, you know, growing up, you know, I'd look at every, you know, British magazine and know about Duran Duran and everything about them or you know everybody that showed up on Soul Train I'd go and try and but you know everything about everything like your head is like an encyclopedia of entertainment knowledge well that's my geekhood right there no you're you're a solid geek it's you've (laughs) got you're a really good geek (laughs) (laughs) um when she was thank you that's an honor it's true it's totally true and it is a compliment thank you when she was 13 two important events happened for her she had rheumatic fever and she talks about it later on in life and she developed a terrible throat infection and it was the best thing that happened to her. That's what I was just about to say. Like, who knows if that's what created. It is. It's what created that. That voice. That, and that her voice. voice like, is magnetic. I started on that. Magnetic. Um, and that fever affected her, her throat. She said her heart, she said in an interview later on, her heart stopped beating for a bit. And the doctor put her in like an oxygen tent. But it was the best thing because that fever affected her throat. Mm -hmm. And when she recovered, she had this booming voice. What? She became Patsy Cline at that moment without the Mm -hmm. name Patsy. Um, But like at 13, and isn't that kind of crazy though mm. that you think this seemingly very traumatizing event could be exactly what is supposed to happen I know. for your destiny. Like you get sick with rheumatic fever. That's insane. Like you could die from you could, that. Especially, I mean, you could die from that now, especially diet. You could die from that I know, then, back you know? in like the 40s and the 30s. Nuts. Um, and number two, her family ended their nomadic existence because they moved around and settled into the same place. They settled into Winchester, Virginia. But I want everybody to know her family moved around 19 times. Before 13? Yes. What? She moved around. They moved around a lot. I mm. feel for kids that go through that because, like, I, I lived in the same house till I was 16. Yeah, And then too. I had a protest because my parents wanted us to move to the river and mm-hmm. I might as well have been moving to Mars. And I was <laughs> so mad at them. I oh, was like, how shame. dare you? Move to the river. I'm well aware of what that sounds like. That sounds I'm being like a, a brat. Shithole country. No, <laughs> <laughs> Canada, that shithole country. <laughs> shithole no, country. but. No, the thing is, is that it was a wonderful, I had a wonderful life and I was moving to a wonderful place, right. but how difficult, I didn't want to leave my friends and I yes. can't even imagine moving yes. that many times. I'm just saying I, I can Jim feel Morrison for Jim moved around like that too. You know what? I read somewhere in a book just recently that that's one of the things that make you, um, that makes some of these really um, successful people successful is when they're able to move around because they learn how to be... Um, they learned how to adapt. I think that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I, I totally think that makes I sense. Ju- it just came up in my head, and I remember reading about that in a book, um, a self-improvement book. Um, and that absolutely then, um, makes sense. I know, right? So she used to say over and over again as a child uh, into adulthood, someday I'm going to be a country singer on the Grand old Opry. I'll make records, and everybody will know my name, probably like you did back in Canada. Um, and everybody was still saying, waiting. Yeah, right. I know what you probably did. 
<laughs> and everybody would tell her, you know what, it's going to be difficult becoming a star. You know, it's not that they were naysayers. Everybody mm-hmm. kind of says, you know, be cautious. They don't want you to hurt yourself. Yeah. But she became even more determined the more she heard them say that. She well, that's the that best thing. Like you. Well, it goes back to the quote you said. Mm-hmm. I mean, that quote is very, very powerful. Who's, because... Who isn't going to let me? Yeah. So who's going to stop me? Yeah. I mean... She became, you know, she started singing. She sang in the Baptist church choir, like Whitney Houston, who had a mm-hmm. great voice even at that age as well. And she did duets with her mom and at socials. And, you know, the funny thing is her dad came from money, but they moved around a lot because her dad had no money by that time. Mm-hmm. Um, when By the time she was born, he was broke. By the time he got 40. What did, what did he do? Like, how did he, he was, lose it all? I mean, I guess he was oh, 43 by that point. Yeah, because his dad. Not saying really you lose rich. money by 43, but, Sometimes I, meant, that but I meant that he had lived a life. It's not like he was 20 years old. Well, it was his dad that had all the money. Mm-hmm. And his dad, um, you know, when his dad died, his sister, I think it was Sam's sister, you know, Patsy's aunt, they, by the time they divided up everything, he had no money to pay taxes and stuff. That's where the money went, I think. Yeah. He had a, had a lot of things. But I think also there was a bit of a scandal with, with Sam's dad, I remember reading about, where when Sam, right before Sam was born, his dad, um, his dad had a child out of wedlock. He was married to Sam's mom, and she had like a ton of kids because he mm-hmm. had a lot of brothers and sisters, which is probably where the money went. But he got somebody pregnant in town, oh. and they and I think she sued him or something. It's really weird. But the money went because I think he invested it in a lot of things. The mm-hmm. dad, and I think when he died, they had to divide it up by all the kids, and it turned out to be that not that much. Oh, okay. So that's why. Um, and he, so he worked as a, like a laborer where he traveled in and out of town. And when Jenny Patsy was 14, she passed for 16 and she got a job at a poultry, um, factory where she plucked chickens, plucked and cut chickens. Gross. Yeah. She complained that the factory smelled foul and she would, um, you know, she wore these hip boots, you know, to go all the way up to her hips. Mm -hmm. Um, because of the wet, bloody floors oh. is what she would talk about. That sounds gross. That sounds terrible. I know. But she knew she wanted to be a star. And at 14, she told her mama, she was like, I'm tired of waiting, mama. And she marched down to the local radio station. I love her. Without telling her age. She auditioned for DJ Jolton Jim McCoy to sing on his show. And Jim McCoy did a live show every week. With his every Saturday, actually Saturday mornings, with his local band called the Melody Playboys, mm-hmm. and so typical of a fourteen-year-old, she she got him out. He finally came out because somebody's like, "Hey, there's this kid that wants to talk to you. Somebody wants to talk to you outside." He comes out and she's like, "Hey, you know what? I want to sing on your show," and she says, "You'll never have to pay me," which is naive, mm-hmm. but she was determined, and he's like, "Sure," and she auditioned. And he liked her audition because he's like, you got it, kid. Um, but the general manager of the stations recalled that she wasn't really good and she was inexperienced. But the great thing about her, and you're going you're gonna to probably, uh, probably love this part, and I love this part about her. She developed a good style with that voice because she had that booming voice. Mm-hmm. So she learned probably control. And um, she always wanted advice, and she actively sought it. 
Yes. She got it from and that's what I heard people. about her that she yeah. uh, someone said Get seriously oh, I wish I knew who it was but they said that she acted further along in her career but she always acted like a musician not mm. just a singer not wow. just this ego singer it was always like a musician that she was one of the band she mm. really treated her voice like an instrument and that she was able mm. to take feedback like what you said and that mm-hmm. she was this so she was already willing to grow as a, a you know, as a teenager? Yeah, at 14. She worked hard. Uh-huh. Um, and, but she was uh, determined. and She was. And she wasn't afraid. And that's what I think is important. Because I think we've lost it as a generation or a few generations. People aren't willing to just work hard for nothing in order to gain something for the, for the end game. Yeah, no, we've absolutely so many younger people have lost. I'm not saying, like, just younger people. All but, it, like, yeah. it's just... You know, we're coming off a generation right now where, I, how do I say this? Um, <laughs> well, just that, you know, everybody expects so much for nothing. And That's there also true. is in the age we live in, there's a lot of instant gratification. Mm-hmm. But you hear of these old time singers and it was just different. But right now, they it's worked just at their a, craft. there is just as much work to be successful now. But mm-hmm. a lot of young people don't see that. They're just right. like... Oh, Shortcuts. what do you mean I, I have to practice guitar? What I do you mean I have to play TV. piano twice? Yeah. I, oh, I've mastered the song. I've played it once. I'm like, right. you haven't mastered that. I know. You, you as a school teacher, you see it. You know, Kids tell do... me all the time. They play it once. They're like, I'm good. I'm like, you're no, not you're good. not. You got to do it all the time. Right. I know how much I suck when I don't play for a while. If I'm like, oh, yeah, I haven't played guitar for a couple weeks. Right. Yeah. I'm not as good when I go back to my guitar. That's just, and that's a lifelong thing. Totally. I mean, but I, it's missing today. Not entirely. You know There's a lot I of great people I think it's missing because of the reality TV. I think reality TV has taught people that I can do, you know, because of the way they edit the show, that takes two seconds and then boom. It's like, see, that worked out fine. And it doesn't work out fine if you don't put the hard work. Even editing takes a lot of work. <laughs> Completely. Like, it all takes a lot of work. So the message is, kids, practice your shit. Practice. Yeah. You like anything? Yeah. Practice. That's what Patsy did. I don't know. I always want to learn. I, Me too. I want to be 90 and be like, hey, That's why check we're out doing this, this like, show. solo. <laughs> That's why we're doing this show. I know, right? Exactly. That's why we're doing this show. I mean, it's... It's about um, learning about what made, as we say on our on our website, www.rockabodiespodcast.com, <laughs> these indelible people that made them stand out from the crowd. Mm-hmm. Stand out from the crowd. Again, we're, spe- we're talking about someone for died in 1963. God. You know, Can you it's 2018. It? Still has the same wow. impact. Like I was listening to her voice. Today, actually, I was walking from lesson to lesson, wow. and I was all teary-eyed. Like, Brilliant. I, I cry a lot, apparently, but Brilliant. I do. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. And when we get to your, her favorite song, if you hear it, when, we, when I talk about it, say that was my favorite that I heard when I was listening to the, when I was going between my lessons. So just let, keep me posted. Okay. So in September 1947, at 15, just as she started establishing herself locally, uh, her dad deserted the family. So she had to get out there and quit high school in her sophomore year at 15. And she went to work at Gaunt's Drugstore. And if Gaunt's Drugstore, if you're still around, it's amazing. And she worked as a clerk in a fountain You attendant. know Gaunt's Drugstore? 
I think they might still be in that town. I hope they are. I don't know. Oh, okay. I thought you said you knew what it was. I thought maybe it was, it was a, a southern thing. Well, <laughs> it's, it is <laughs> in Virginia. Uh, you know, um, she ended up taking a few jobs. We were probably about to talk about that to help her mom, which she was happy about. She was happy about, but we'll get to that part. But in when you know when she turned sixteen, like around that time, there was this guy named Wally Fowler who was leader leader of the Oak Ridge Quartet, which turned into the Oak Ridge Boys, mm-hmm. um, and they performed at a theater in Patsy's hometown. So she got backstage somehow and auditioned for the man, and she's like, he loved her audition because you know she had that mm-hmm. voice, that incredible voice, and he said, you know what? He asked her to perform, uh, you know, on stage that night. So her audition backstage caused him to bring her out on stage, and she performed a song that night. Wow. And she made her first theatrical debut that very night in her hometown. Okay, what did you say? It was a couple shows ago, mm-hmm. but you, one of your quotes, and mm-hmm. I feel it's applicable okay. to Patsy, mm-hmm. it was about, no, you said it in Gary's show. It was about being ready. Oh, by Johnny Carson. Yeah. Because that I feel yeah. was Patsy. Yeah, Patsy she because she ready. she is on because yeah. I can't imagine like, you know, when I was fifteen I the felt confidence. I wanted all those things, but still walking in and then someone being like, Oh yeah, by the way, sing for go me on right stage. Now. Yeah. Sing for me. You wanna you wanna go on stage? You wanna audition? Sing for me right now. And she'd do it. Like break out yeah. in song. She was amazing. She and was also ready. I think what made why people like doors open for her is because it was the voice connected. With the, with the heart. Yes. And she had that early, early, early. The confidence. Yeah. Like, I can do this. Um, I guess it's almost like having her voice. Can you imagine a 15-year-old having her voice? You would have that type of confidence, I guess. I don't know. I've seen some, but I've worked with people that have crazy, like young people that have mm-hmm. had crazy voices, and they don't understand the thing. confidence thing, but they mm-hmm. have the voice. Right. So confidence and charisma. is... charisma. Yeah, that's... Cause you need like the trifecta of it you really do that's true that's very true because there's some people that aren't even that great but they're super confident and you're like i'll buy your stuff yeah and uh-huh, we, see, we hear it every day on the yeah. radio trust um, confidence goes very far she yes, just happened does. to have all of it and the charisma that flew with that but um yeah he was impressed and he when she came off the stage that night he followed her home and got her mom up out of the bed and said you know what i want her to audition in Nashville for this radio show. I mean, it's a radio station called WSM Radio, which is the Opry, where the Opry um, show is, was, uh, was, um, what do you call the word? Broadcast? Yes. <laughs> Damn skinny Margarita Del Mauro. Um, <laughs> what was broadcast out of. <laughs> and two weeks later, on a Friday morning, you know, because Patsy's mom said, all right, cool. They mm. called her in that interim within that two weeks and said, okay, come down. So her mom, and they were dirt poor. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that her, her mom, and her siblings lived dirt poor. And uh, so they had to, because their car wasn't working that well, they had to ask a family friend to drive the 800-mile trip to Nashville from Winchester, uh, Virginia. And, um, you know, the, all of them got in the car and they had no money even for a hotel, a motel, you know. They drove all night to get there that <laughs> like, particular been there, day. Done that. 
I know. She sang two songs for the general man manager of the Opry and the Opry uh, pianist. Um, his last name was Mulliken, Moon, Mooney Mulliken, I think. And they loved it and asked her to come back the next day to sing for other executives, but her mom was in a bit of a pickle. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the problem for her mom because she had no money for a hotel and she had to get back to work. You oh, know, yeah. she didn't want to lose her job. So she took the guy aside. I'm kind of going off the, my head right now because I remember this. And she told him of her dilemma, the general manager. And he's just like, uh-huh, uh-huh. He's like, still, we'll, we'll call you tomorrow. So somehow they stayed overnight. Oh, wow. I don't know where they stayed at, but somehow. But they didn't hear from the executives the next day. Mm. That must have been heartbreaking for her mom. Yeah. And that was the problem for her mom. So she took Patsy aside um and because she had to get back to work and said patsy we got to get back and so they returned mm-hmm. to winchester and her mom kind of said it when they interviewed her for a particular book or whatever she's like and they never called they never sent me a letter yeah. or call from anyone and like that's an 800 mile trip with children I like I know. that's not like driving to burbank that's like crazy far i know that sucks I mean, the amazing thing is, the mom even said it, is that Patsy was like, or her name was Jenny at the time still, she didn't let that get to her. She's like, eh, eh, whatever. But also, too, that's part of yeah, that's part of the gig, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, you're going to get a, anybody, anybody who's mm-hmm. ever been successful in, I think, the arts or even as an entrepreneur or anything, mm-hmm. you've probably got more no's than you've ever had yeses. It's just those yeses have been good, but you've probably got more no's. Exactly. And my it, line at work is a no is a delayed yes. <laughs> That's my line at work. That's how I live my work life and probably my personal life too. <laughs> um, but a no, for all you youngest out there, rock of babies, a no is a delayed yes. Depending on what it is. <laughs> well, yeah, okay, yeah, you're right. Well, sometimes not in the sometimes too, no not means no. Not in the Me no. Too movement, it's not. Sometimes but, no means no. Yes, no means no in the Me Too movement. But In the work movement. In the work movement. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be clear. <laughs> when, you, when you really want to accomplish something in your professional side of your world, that's what that means. But no, I don't practice that. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, Lord, we take funny. the darkest subjects and somehow always find it funny. Yay. <laughs> uh, a rainbow. <laughs> a rainbow. Yes, out of the storm. A rainbow moment. <laughs> Follow the stars. There you go. But Jenny continued, like, working at the drugstore. <laughs> And singing at, like, church socials, benefits, fraternal parties, carnivals. She didn't care. Taverns, honky-tonks. But she did like, She didn't care. There was no job that was too small for her. Uh, see? None. Like, that attitude is so good. I know. It's inspirational. Mm-hmm. And her mom made all of her cowgirl, cowgirl uh, costumes, even up until she gets big. If people can look at some of the... YouTube videos, those cowgirl costumes. Mm-hmm. Her mom made those. Uh, if I ever have a kid that's a performer, you I want to make all their costumes. Oh my god! And they'd be like, so "No, cute. mom, stop it!" And what I'm would like, you make them? Would you make them I like make anything? Oh, I love it. I love making costumes. Can I make you a costume? <laughs> you need to make me a costume. I don't know what you make me though. Whatever you want. I love flamboyant. making costumes. Maybe 
I don't know what kind of costume I would want you to make. I'd have to think about that. Think about it. I'll make you one. Okay. And we'll get a picture for everybody. That's right. Put <laughs> it on there. Hey. For some reason, I love make making costumes. Make that shit sexy. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and the crazy thing is that in addition to the job at Gaunt uh, Drugstore and her singing engagements, she had a part-time job at the Greyhound Terminal as a like singer at a, and as a singer at a restaurant. That's insane. You know, Patsy said in an interview later on, she would say, Mama would pick me up and take me to wherever I had a job. We had the one car, so she dropped me off and came back to get me later on. She said that the whole the whole night, Mama didn't... Wait a minute, I'm reading my whole thing wrong. <laughs> wait a minute, let me look at this. All right, let me redo this. Passy said this in an interview. Mama would pick me up and take me to wherever I had a job. We had the one car, so she dropped me off and came back to get me later on. Or she stayed the whole night at the place where I worked. Mama didn't trust me with anyone. Knowing me, it was probably just as well. We'd get home about 1 in the morning, totally exhausted. And at 6 a.m., I was up with Mom fixing breakfast for the kids her younger siblings, by the way, then off to work, and you know what? We loved every minute of it. Oh, We loved every minute of it. I feel like it. I would be that as a mom. She's dedicated. I love that, though. Like, I just love Ms. hearing... Miss Hilda was an amazing mom. Just when, like, parents believe in their kids and will do that. Her mom did. She oh my loved God. My parents that. have totally been like that to Miss Willie would totally do that. Oh, yeah, my parents have supported me like, yeah, a totally. ridiculous amount. They're always believed in me for and they still do yes they do yes they someday, do someday mom and dad someday <laughs> i know you're already there making it um she dated but nothing serious was on the horizon and she didn't have any plans to get tied down you know especially such a young age but she was notorious for her vulgar mouth which oh, i loved which it. i love about you know, her she could turn around and be a genteel lady but the one thing though is she called people house house h-o-s-s mm. house you know, but she had a vulgar mouth, which I loved about her, too. You know, because I have a vulgar one, But she too. was also, like, to be, like, again, everyone has to remember, this yeah. is, like, the early 50s. Totally. And to be a young woman like that in the early 50s and to be as, I mean, it's not even a word that fits, but ballsy as she was. And, I like that. But she, I mean, she was, like, way ahead of her time. She's yeah. how, yeah. I don't know. Like, she was a part of the... Me Too movement before Me Too. Like, she didn't give a damn. And I think people really respected her from everything that I read about her and saw about her. You know, the guys loved her for it. Mm -hmm. You know, most because of the time Because she people, was one of the, I think she was... One of a She kind. was one of, and she was also one of the crew, too. She was yeah. one of the, she loved her musicians. She had the she backup, was, yeah. the voice to back up her, her stuff. Um, uh, in 1951, when she was 19 years old, she became a regular at the Rainbow Inn in town. And in the summer of 1952, the owners of that inn built an outdoor like stage adjacent to the Rainbow Inn for Sunday afternoon family concerts. And she performed there too. There was That's what I love about her. There was no job that was too small. She loved singing. She mm -hmm. knew she was gonna make it and that was that. But in that summer also of 1952, she auditioned for Bill Peer. He was a leader of a band called the Melody Boys. 
um, similar to Melody Playboys for mm-hmm. Jolton Jim, but oh, yeah. he was Melody Boys to sing at like a Moose Lodge, and he was sadly enough he was instantly smitten from the jump, even though he was married. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Bill Pierce, um, full time. I, I admire him too because the, another one who back in that day his full time, uh, you know, occupation was country music, but it didn't earn him enough to support his family and his mm-hmm. career. So Bill worked two day jobs in order to be free weekends to accept band-aids. You know, he was employed by Good Motor Company in Charlestown, right, which is probably around in Virginia, where he ran the parts department. Um, and he um, and he was a part-time Buick salesman. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Like it, back then people had no problem working three or four jobs for their dream. Mm-hmm. You know, they looked at that. My dream is my full time mm-hmm. um, occupation, and most importantly, Bill offered her ten dollars a show, and he changed her name to Patsy. Yeah. He changed her name to Patsy uh, from her middle name. It was taken from her middle name, Patterson. So this is nineteen fifty-two. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna do my fun little game: ten dollars a show. Yeah, ten dollars a show. I don't feel that's even that bad. Oh, you know what, Michelle? I bought a big, a big calculator for you. Oh, you know how I like calculators. Actually, if you stopped it, I'll go get the big calculator for you. Well, I have to look at the... I don't really know. I'm going to go on the interweb. To You're going to go to the interweb? Okay. Well, because it's not... A, I don't know what the inflation is. I'm, oh, that's right. I wish, okay, I, was, that's I, wish I was that smart. That's good. I got, I got a big calculator for you next time. But while you're looking that up, you know, he when he told her, he's like, mm, Jenny is just not like... Mm, it just doesn't have the oomph to it. And thanks to Bill Peer... Um, Ladies and gentlemen, kids, boys and girls, that's her name became Patsy mm. from Bill Peer. You know, he changed it. He told her, she told him her full name and he took it from Patterson. Um, mm. And when she did that, the funny thing is, is that she was an instant hit. She became an instant hit. Mm-hmm. You got the, you got the uh, amount. You want me to keep going? Um, but Bill, Bill fell in love with her, you know. Uh, that's not bad. What is it? $91 a show. That's not bad. Wow, $91, $91. a show? $91. Well, she worked like a dog. I mean, they performed every weekend, and she was no job. I mean, she was a breadwinner for her, for her, you know, mom and her, her family. She was, she's always been a breadwinner. She worked, she worked hard. That's the one thing I could say about Patsy Cline. She was a hard worker. And... You know, Bill, he loved her. He went into debt to help Patsy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a kind of an unsung hero to me in her career because he became her manager. Mm-hmm. And by becoming her manager, he bought her clothes and he attempted to get her a record contract. They did demos. He paid to have demos made for her. And with Bill, she just saw him as an opportunity. She's like, mm-hmm. he's married, mm-hmm. you know. He produced and circulated the demos, like I said, but... The sad thing is she broke his heart in December 1952 because unbeknownst to everybody, she shocked her mom, her friends, and especially Bill with news that she was getting married. Oh, yeah. Um, she had been dating someone discreetly, and that would be Gerald Klein. Um, and on March 7th, 1953, she married Gerald, Gerald Klein, who was seven years older than her. Now, I want to say Bill Peer was like 11 years older than her. Yeah. Um, she was still very young. Um, he was stunned 
He was betrayed. Um, and also, dude, he was married. So you exactly, know, he got like, a lot of damn nerve. But, I know to be like, how dare you? Know, you how even dare though I'm you? married with children. Oh yeah, I mean, from day one, you know, her marriage was doomed to Gerald Klein because Gerald wanted a wife, and she was just too ambitious for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find she, that so ridiculous, though. I know, someone, right? Someone falls in love, right. with an ambitious. I mean, it's not always a woman, but let's just say. She was known to be best, very ambitious. But to know that, you fall in love with that person, right. and then you're married to them, and you want to change them. Like, I mean, that's it's ridiculous. ridiculous. It's ridiculous. You know what? I thought I got away so far, because I say ridiculous so much, and I <laughs> thought I got away so far in this episode not saying ridiculous. I know. And now I've said it. Even though I said it there, it is ridiculous. But this show will earn that. This show it will earn, earn the it. ridiculousness. It so. will. It will. Um, in 1954, at the age of 22, she became a regular on the afternoon radio show Town and Country Time, starring Jimmy Dean. Um, and we'll learn about him from the bumpers. Jimmy Dean is special. And she also won, like, first prize in, prize in like, a national country music championship. Um, and she would perform on Town and Country because she was so good and became so popular. She would perform live shows, like they did mm-hmm. live shows around the area. And in addition to her radio work, and she did it on TV, um, she was paid $60.18 a week, and she got double for TV. So, yeah, so again, that's not that bad right. by today's standards, because right. she's getting six, I mean, yeah, $600 a week is not right. crazy, but that was plus, she did other stuff too, so it's really not Yeah, she worked hard, crazy. she busted her ass. Um, during this time, though, she experienced a miscarriage hmm. by Gerald Klein or maybe Bill. I, I don't know. But because she stepped, she kept being with Bill as well because he was he stayed her manager. Um, whoa, 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 whoa. Did I miss that they were sleeping together? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Let me just go back. Ah, uh, okay. I thought he was infatuated, but I didn't he know was infatuated they were sleeping with together. Yes, she did sleep with Bill. She because she looked at him as just an opportunity. So they had like a little affair. Um, it got kind of bad. We're gonna get to that point. Oh, all right. Um, but yes, all right. She was sleeping with Bill too, and she was married. In fact, someone said that she went back and forth. Hmm. She'd get mad at one, go with the other. But you know, she was Patsy. She was like she had her own strategy for her life and Mm -hmm. she wasn't she was she was in love with herself and with that voice and she knew where she was going she well she she, definitely had enough life drama to bring it out into her song i know i love it i love Mm -hmm. we always gonna get good um but in 1954 uh her demo fell into the hands of william a mccall the president of a pasadena pasadena based california (laughs) president of pasadena california based record company called four star records um but they had a deal with decca they had like a he was a record company had a deal a distribution deal with decca records because he didn't have distribution mm. and here's where it's just you and i are gonna have to do a show about and I, we have to find somebody to come in and talk to us about these record companies mm-hmm. because we should be doing a series upcoming series about record companies like stacks yeah. Cadillac. We're going to do that this year I think that'd sometime. be super interesting. And then I have a whole bunch to say about that. <laughs> you definitely, from your experience, we're going to go dig into that because that, it fascinates me mm-hmm. 
to no end. I'm infatuated with the idea, but we'll, we'll go into it. But two and a half weeks after her 22nd birthday on September 30th, because her birthday was September 8th, 1954, Patsy Cline signed a two-year recording contract with Four Star, who had the distribution deal with DECA. Um, she didn't have a lawyer like Lisa Lopez, didn't have a lawyer mm-hmm. to sign. You know, neither did Bill. Bill, should, you know, to me, he should have had a lawyer there to review the fine print. Mm-hmm. And it was considered one of the biggest mistakes of her professional life um, because the contract specified, and this is where you come into play, uh, like a minimum of a, like, a certain amount of sides. Mm-hmm. And also they had to use only DECA songwriters. They couldn't oh, go out yeah. and use, like Sam could use anybody yeah, he yeah. wanted, but he wrote his own stuff. Um, and her services are exclusive with Four Star for two mm-hmm. years with a one-year renewal option, which is very important. We'll see in like five seconds. But any recordings made will remain the property of Four Star. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty common. You know, and her royalty was very paltry. It was 2.34% of the retail list price. Wow. On records sold in the U.S. And it was about half the royalty paid to established artists. And because she was a woman, of course, she got the worst of the deal. Yeah. Um, session musicians, they had to pay for their own session musicians. <laughs> I was surprised. Within yeah. 14 days of the services. Really? Yeah, like normally wouldn't the record company pay for that? And then it just kind of come out of stuff Yeah, theoretically, on. it depends yeah. what deal you sign. Yeah, with. exactly. But because this deal, you know, they feel like they had to gouge her out. Mm-hmm. Um, they had to pay it. And such payments at scale would be deducted from Patsy's royalties, you know, and it was awful. But that, that's common. We talked about that. Awful. With that, we talked about that with Lisa because that's, you know, the whole idea of, you know, you're getting a tour bus and you're getting all this stuff. That's just coming out of your money. It's it's essentially, it's a loan. It's a loan out all, mm-hmm. and every single dollar, every single cent that is spent attached to the artist all comes from the artist. Everything, ultimately. Oh, God. I mean, it's just, I just don't understand why, and, and we're going to talk about this when we do this series on these record companies, why you got to, like, have practically, is practically have like a slave trade you Mm -hmm. know what I mean why does it have to go that far into it and gouge somebody I do feel I mean this is probably saved for that episode right but I do feel living the majority of my career well no I do think there's been a shift or shifting because in the last 15 years there's been a massive shift in music and you know of course there's still the labels there's all that but there's also this new thing of people artists being able to to create and put out their own work Mm -hmm. which has given artists a little bit more power and it's I think we're going through the arc of it Mm -hmm. and it's hard when you're in it especially as an artist because it doesn't of course there's some things that still exist but it's very rare that the three song demo go get a huge deal tour the world it doesn't happen as much like a lot of the times when people are signed now right they've been touring successful bands for years on their own right so it's it's a very different time but the flip side of it because i think evolution is good Mm -hmm. it's hard when you're going through the shift of it right but i don't see it as ultimately the worst thing ever because i feel musicians have had to become business people as well because it is a business and gary had said that it is a business yeah and the this idealistic thing of just wanting to 
believe that everyone's good and I just want to sing a song. It doesn't work that way. And it's not, it's, I mean, it's good and bad, but it's... Gary's son, you know, is funny. We're going to have him mm-hmm. on at some point. He said it's good and bad, like you. Yeah. He said it's good and bad because there's a like this 360 contract now that people have. Oh yeah, well that's I mean. Up with. Oh yeah, I'll have so much to say. I'll have so yeah. much to say we, on that, that I think episode. We should do a series on. It's interesting depending on I what mean, side, because you can be from the business side and you can be from the artist side. Right. And you know, I've lived my side of it, so I right. can see. You know, I have my version of it, but on the flip side, I do think it's giving artists now and pave the future for Mm. future artists Mm. this the independents can get their stuff out there and it's given us a little bit more power that who knows if that's that's a good thing this might be like what we're doing for artists 10 years from now like how different the platform is going to be and there's not going to be the same type of deals where they're these big companies making billions of dollars off mm-hmm. an artist and mm-hmm. they can, can't make their car payment like right I right. think it's no, you're right I think it I'm hoping that both. I do think it's changing but I think we're in because the middle of YouTube too yeah a lot of these artists are found on YouTube like Justin Bieber yeah um here's a quick question for you um on to be a devil's advocate mm-hmm. do you think and I saw this we'll see this with Patsy that as a record company, you're like thinking, I'm doling out all this money sometimes for no hits, mm-hmm. but we're doling out all this money. Mm-hmm. Is that what it's about from the record company? Do you think that that's what they think? That's how they look well, at it? Well, I think it's all, I mean, you don't just, they give deals to people that they think they're going to make money off. You know, right. you don't, it's rare just to get and a not deal. not everybody because, makes it. No, no, not at all. Right. A lot of, I mean, sometimes they do, uh, they'll find, this was years ago that I heard this, but. I think it's probably true Mm -hmm. that they'll find two bands because similar sounds come out at the same time. And I don't necessarily think it's copycatting. I do kind of think there's sometimes a universal sound because sometimes there is bands that come out at the same time and they have this similar sound. And this has been known and factual that a label will sign the one and then they sign another one that sounds similar and they shelf that one record so the other one can get bigger because it's like, how do they decide? I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm totally. I remember hearing that years we ago. We have to get someone in from the record company. I know, we like this is getting, because yeah, because this I is. I want to definitely deal. And with I would that love point. to hear from their point of view yeah. too, because yeah. you know, I've I've only yeah. been on my side of the story, and I know. Um. So, um, Patsy toured nonstop. She was so excited by her record deal. She loved it, and she went into the studio for the first time with someone who will be her longtime producer, Owen Bradley, a country music producer pioneer. Owen Bradley was the main producer on Patsy Cline's albums. Owen is also credited with being one of the chief architects of the 1950s and 1960s Nashville sound and rockabilly. Besides Patsy, Owen made household names of her friends, Brenda Lee and Loretta Lynn, as well as Conway Twitty, among others. His production of Klein's legendary hits like Crazy, I Fought to Pieces, and Walkin' After Midnight still remain the standard against which great female country records are measured today. In 1974, Owen was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame. Um, and Owen approached Bill, this is sad, on their first uh, studio session, Owen went to Bill and said, hey Bill, who's gonna pay for the musicians? Talking about their record contract. Mm-hmm. Bill said, you know what? Call McCall. Call McCall. 
the head of, uh, you know, four star. So Orin called McCall because he's like, whatever. McCall says, uh, no, check the contract. So Patsy's manager had to pay the musicians on that first uh, session. Bill Peer had to pay them. And I read somewhere that he had just gotten a, um, that he had just gotten a uh, uh, inheritance from, I think his mom's death or somebody's death. And so he had the money to pay like $1,500 back then for... I, I just, I mean, yes, these are sad, I guess. Right. I don't know. It's she not, was lucky. But it's not sad to me. I mean, I've had to pay for musicians. Everyone's had to pay for musicians. I just don't... With studio time? Yes. That absolutely. Sucks. 100%. I just don't find that too much of a sob story. That's just part of right. it. Patsy definitely didn't have it, so I'm glad that her manager Yeah, but I mean, that's that's faith in a manager. I think if they believe in you, they should do that. If he had that's the means true. to do it and whatever, yeah. he believed in her. and He definitely believed in her. Yeah. And, and with that voice, God. Like, I just don't so see a problem with. with that because that's that's the faith in your career. Right. Right, no. I counted true. every dollar I spent. <laughs> I know the amazing thing, unlike your thing, where yes, you've had to pay musicians because you had good material. They didn't have good material because they only had to stick with Decca songwriters. They yeah. couldn't go out the box, and she yeah. couldn't record any other songs except for Decca writers. Which is see that part's crazy to me. The fact that you're like handcuffed into this deal and then right. you have to sign like that is weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she, it, it gave her limited choices. Mm-hmm. She recorded for two years and released no hits. Ugh. You know. And on July 1st, 1955, Patsy got closer to her dream and performed at the Grand Ole Opry like, radio show. Um, and I t- we talked about Bill and Patsy sleeping together. And Gerald almost caught them. On oh, the so I ruined the secret. No, it's all good. You didn't ruin the secret. <laughs> it was no secret, not even to their spouses, honestly. Really? Oh. Uh, you know, especially to uh, Bill's wife, because there were a few incidents. But she had endeared a lot of humiliating moments at, at by that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and she filed for divorce on the grounds of adultery. Yeah. You know. And during this time... This is sad, but Patsy announced that she was leaving Bill's band. Mm. Um, she wanted to really, you know, she wasn't really a part of his band, but she fronted it, you know. Yeah. And poor Bill went off the deep end. I mean, he nearly had a nervous breakdown. Um, you know, some of the the bandmates would say that he would sing and just get upset in the middle of a song Aww. when he would be performing. And one night, another guy found him on the floor crying. Aww. You know, it it's broke his heart, too, yeah. because she was leaving him, mm-hmm. you know. But Patsy, all she could think of is, like, I need to make it big. You know, but Patsy thought of Patsy, so that's And I love thing. that. I love that she had a strategy. She had a plan. It's about me. Yeah. She saw a bigger picture. That nobody mm-hmm. else saw. Yeah, um, and she knew that she was willing to. Think she all she could think of was making it big mm-hmm. and getting away from anything or anyone that might hold her back. And that brings us to Gerald. Mm-hmm. She felt that Gerald was holding her down, and she wasn't in love with Gerald. Yeah. So she separated from Gerald in 1956. Um, Bill re-entered her life, um, kind of wanting the old sparks to kind of reignite. 
But she wasn't having it. She mm-hmm. re- rejected his advances, and she told him, I just want to be friends, which is not what he wanted to mm-hmm. hear. You know, because she was still t- on time to time performing on town and country, the county, town and country shows, and she developed quite a following on that. Um, and as far as she was concerned, she was underpaid. Mm-hmm. So, you know, dealing back to now times, She's gutsy and baldy, mm-hmm. and she asked for a raise from Connie Gay, who is a, a pioneer, by the way, who owned Town and Country that Jimmy Dean was at. Yeah. And he said, you know what? You're being paid more than enough for a woman. That's oh. what he said, for a woman. So then ah. Patsy went to Bill McCall for money, which goes into that renewal deal. Mm-hmm. And he's like, sure, you can have some, like a little bit of an advance. If you sign for another year on your contract. So she agreed because she made a pittance and she needed to live. And he gave her $200 and she renewed her contract on March 30th, 1956. $200 for a year? Yes. So now she was tied to four DECA, four star, I'm sorry, not four DECA, but four star Mm -hmm. until 1957. So another year. Oh. You were going to say something. I don't know what I was going to say, but now I'm upset. <laughs> I know. Oh, I was just going to say, well, because I mean, they took it also for her to be like in the 50s, as a woman in the 50s, to be like, this is bullshit. I'm not getting paid enough, which yeah, is fantastic. More, Connie. And for her to be like, you're getting paid enough as a woman. Oh, yeah. Kick him in the balls. <laughs> yes, exactly. I just right, can't hear right this. It's like shocking. And I mean, again, I, I know that. it's a different time, but You're still. You're being paid more than enough for a woman. And Connie Gay be- ended up becoming one of the, it's a guy named Connie, but he became a huge pioneer in country. But anyway, mm. in between Patsy's career struggles, she's 24 at this time. She met a 22-year-old guy, wild child, ladies' man named Charlie Dick on uh, April 13th, 1956. I know what's interesting about that, April 13th. Yeah. And it was a Friday, the April 13th. Right. I'm born on April 13th. What? Yeah, so I read this, I'm like, oh, yay, I get to say it. Now you see, that was the love of her life, man. See, it's a good day. It's a good day. Dang, I need to do something on April 13th now. Something (laughs) love-related. And Charlie worked in the mailroom. That's awesome. Did you see that? I did, yeah. Yeah, I saw it, and I was like, I know I'm going to say something. I can't let it go. Do you know if you were born on a Friday? I was born on a Thursday. I thought I was born on a Friday forever, and then I realized it was a Thursday. Day before. Could have been almost, you know, maybe 11.51. I always thought it was a Friday. Was it at night? Is it dinner? Oh, well, that's good enough. I came right in time for dinner. It was it was midnight somewhere. <laughs> no, that's um, true. <laughs> he worked in the mailroom at a local newspaper, and he was two years younger than her because I said she was 24 and he was 22. But they fell in love, and she divorced Gerald. They had already been – her and Gerald mm-hmm. had been separated, though, for about a year anyway. Mm-hmm. So in October 1956 – um. Bill McCall, McCall, I must call him Paul McCall because I don't want to get him mixed up with Bill Peer, um, played a song called Walking After Midnight over the phone to her. And she instantly said, I hate it. It's so funny. She hated it. He played it again and she said, I still hate it, McCall. And McCall sent for her and was like, get your butt out here. All expenses paid trip to L.A. to go to Pasadena Mm -hmm. or wherever 
to, um, and they had to coax her into recording it on October 15, 1956 in Los Angeles. And she complained to friends later on that they made her record this, this song she just couldn't stand. She said, it's <laughs> awful. It's a pop. And I don't want to sing pop. I'm a country girl. And it was walking after midnight. Can you believe that? It's so funny and I can't get it out of my head right now. I know, me neither. Um, and before returning home, Patsy saw McCall again and chronically short of money, she asked for an advance again mm-hmm. because she had so much on her shoulders, poor girl. Mm-hmm. And he gladly replied in exchange for an additional what? One year. Renewal. One year. How much did he give her this time? Well, he renewed it and signed her again, and she got $200 again. $200 for a year? Inflation doesn't even make up for that. Yes. And she was tied to McCall through September 29th, my mother's birthday. Oh, that's also her birthday, yeah. Yep. And at the end of 1956, she was flat broke again, even after working nonstop on the road. Mm -hmm. She was just working like a dog. Um, and she called him again and asked for more money. And he offered her $500 and a two-year renewal. And she was contractually tied to him until September 29th, again, 1960. Oh, my God. I know. It's sad that she had to work so hard. And later that year, uh, Arthur Godfrey's talent scouts asked her to come on the show, to which she agreed. And the catch was she needed like a talent scout to represent her. And she said, my mother can do it. And they said, no, it'll prejudice the audience if we say your mom is bringing you out. And Mm -hmm. Arthur Godfrey was like the precursor to American Idol. Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts, an American radio and television variety show competition, was the precursor to American Idol. It ran on CBS from 1948 until 1958. The show starred Arthur Godfrey and featured several talent scouts from around the country who brought their discoveries onto the program to showcase their talents. The winner of each show was determined by a meter that judged the audience's applause. Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts premiered on December 6, 1948. It remained a highly popular show through the decade and aired its final episode on January 1st, 1958. She visited her dad right before she was to fly to New York because Arthur Godfrey um, broadcast out of New York. And she went found, you know, saw her dad. She visited her pops who died of lung cancer in um, December 11th, 1956. You know what? That's the day Sam, Sam was Cook killed. Sam Cooke died mm-hmm. in 1964. Mm-hmm. Isn't that crazy? That's weird. That just came to me. Um, she told him about the audition. He was like, you don't need to be going to New York. But anyway, on Saturday, January 5th, she was late in between going to New York. She was late for a town and country rehearsal. And she apologized to Jimmy Dean. Um, and they had kind of a complicated but wonderful relationship. Um and Jimmy Dean said, you know, she called up Jimmy, said, Jimmy, I'll be there as soon as I can. And he's like, you know what? If you can't make it on time for rehearsals, there need, there's no need for you to come for the show because there won't be a spot for you and consider yourself fired. Oh. He fired her. She was shocked. Wow. And to make matters worth, he dug the knife in on the telecast. You know, Jimmy didn't mention Patsy by name, but he got those digs in. 
Um, and he said, people on the way up should be especially nice to those they pass because they might need them when they come tumbling down. And I'd like to dedicate this song to a girl you all used to see a lot of. And he's saying, pick me up on your way down. At the end, he said, I'll pass you on your way down. He did that on national wow, television. Wow, Mr. Sausage isn't so nice, Mr. is he? Mr. Sausage is, woo, he's tough, right? Wow. Jimmy Dean was an American country music singer, television host, actor, and businessman before becoming best known today as the creator of the Jimmy Dean Sausage brand. After hosting Town & Country Time, Jimmy rose to national fame by having a 1961 country crossover hit, Big Bad John, and hosting his own television series called The Jimmy Dean Show, in which he gave a puppeteer, Jim Henson, creator of The Muppets, his first television break. In 1969, he founded the Jimmy Dean Sausage Company with his brother Don. The company was a success in part because of Dean's own humorous commercials. The company was purchased in 1984 by the Sara Lee Corporation. You know, so she was like, fuck it, I'm going to New York. I've got this, you know, doing this whole uh, precursor to American Idol, mm -hmm. Arthur Godfrey. And so, re <laughs> this is funny. So while rehearsing for Arthur Godfrey, Arthur had an assistant named Jeanette Davis who did all of his scouting for like the songs to make sure you sing the right song mm -hmm. on the show. And she picked from your catalog. So she kept insisting that they needed a song to, to match Patsy's, the quality of her voice. So Patsy kept giving her all these previous country songs mm -hmm. that she recorded over those past few years. And they didn't sound like something that Jeanette wanted. And finally, Jeanette asked at one point, she said, Patsy, is there anything else on your portfolio that I haven't seen? And so Patsy just threw up her arms and was like, okay, okay, okay. You know, there's just one more. And she sang, Walking After Midnight. <laughs> Jeanette was like, oh my God, that's a perfect <laughs> song for you. Sing that one. And Patsy was like, this is incredible what she said. And you're going you're gonna to probably remark about this one, Michelle, because you're looking at it, but she said, it makes me feel like a prostitute. <laughs> it's nothing but a little old pop song. And Jeanette said, maybe so, but it just might make you famous. Mm. It's and, such a good song. I know, and it did. Yeah. Because she went on the show and won. A surprise. Yeah, and unbeknownst to them, the talent scout that introduced her was her mom Aww. because her mom had a different last name than her oh that's perfect yeah she you know her mom had a different name because her mom was a hensley oh yeah and she was inclined so her mom posed as her talent scout i love the relationship between her and her mom i know i love it i love it they won you know patsy won of course not they patsy won and so godfrey was like oh my god because that meter went off the charts mm -hmm. for the applause and he's like, you won. He asked for another song. And she sang the country song by Hank Williams, Your Cheating Heart, which mm. is beautiful. Oh, yeah. I went and listened to it on that Spotify. That song's so good. Yeah. And as was custom, you know, they invited her to return the following Monday as a special guest. And the next day, he asked Patsy to become a regular on the show. Wow. You know, All because of doing that song she didn't want to do. Midnight. Yes. I wonder though, like how many artists? Because you do hear right. people like their right. biggest hits are the songs they hated the most. 
like how much it's that's just a be, very good point it's really true though like there's it a is. lot of artists that they're like i hate that song hate that's that what song. they're known from they're known for yeah Wow. And I think also people have to remember, yeah. like, country music was very isolated at this point. It wasn't what country music is now. Like, country music is, is pop music now, and country right. music is huge all over the world. Right. At that point, it was still quite localized, and it wasn't as big as it is now. Completely. So for her to, and, like, every country artist is kind of crossover now. Most of them are. Completely. And it wasn't then. Like, so... It wasn't even that known outside like of the country. Taylor Swift. I mean, well, everybody. Taylor Swift is a pop artist. <laughs> she is. And she started out in She Nashville. started, yeah. Isn't she started, crazy? but she's super pop now. Yeah. But yeah, but it's just like... I I was listening to the listening to some stuff about Patsy and yeah, just that reminder to be like you have to remember country music was not nearly as popular right everywhere like it, it just more, you're right it was more it was localized. isolated it was isolated yeah. to that local area yeah and so and then it now it's huge country music is actually one of the biggest exports around the world it is and you know what I gotta say this is that I learned this in one of my classes many years ago I might said might say <laughs> um in a music appreciation class that country music was being broadcast down into jamaica and that is one of the influences on reggae really yes if you listen so to if you cool. think about it that makes even sense. redemption song by by yeah. bob Mars, the beginning of that yeah yes that's cool that's what they had to listen to in jamaica it's funny because you know, Patsy became a regular, I'm thinking about this, she became a regular on Arthur Godfrey's, you know, talent scout show. And anybody else would have been happy at that big break mm -hmm. on the Godfrey show, but not Patsy. She was miserable. Yeah. Because she wanted to go on the Grand Old Opry and not Arthur Godfrey. Yeah, that was like her main childhood goal. Yes, her dream. Because she kept saying, you know, I don't want to be a pop star. I want to be a country star. And Jeanette won't let me yodel or do a country <laughs> song. And she drove Arthur and Jeanette crazy. Uh, Patsy fought, you know, Arthur and Jeanette, you know, each time they wanted her to sing a pop song. And after two weeks, Godfrey finally, Arthur finally told Patsy, he said, you've got to do the songs that Jeanette you know, selects. That's her job. Mm -hmm. That's what she does for me. And she says, I won't do it, Arthur. And he's fired her. Wow. And told her that, you know, she can come back and see them every once in a while. And she did engagements for, you know, Arthur Godfrey's show and the radio portion too, off and on. But, you know, she really kind of got out of work at that point. And so she went back while mm -hmm. waiting for the release of Walking After Midnight. She went back to Connie Gay who owned Town and Country Time with, you know, that Jimmy Dean performed on. And she asked for her old job back, uh, but with a raise. And he rehired her because she asked for a raise. Mm -hmm. um, but she was chronically late, you know, because she was doing so many shows. And she was, because she was in great demand, you know. Uh, and so she ended up leaving again anyway. Mm -hmm. She started leaving again. So on February 11th, you know, Walking After Midnight was released and it became a smash, thanks in part to Arthur Godfrey's talent show, as we talked about. And it went to number two on the country uh, charts and it hit the pop charts 
Um, it is funny that she considered that a pop song. Because when I hear it, I just hear a country. I, I don't really country hear too. a country song. I mean, I, I love that song, but I don't. I don't think of it as pop. I know I don't either. And the funny thing is that it did hit the pop charts, and that was uh, that was the unprecedented first for a female artist. Wow! Right to do there. the crossover. Yes, and which is so over. weird to what we were just talking about is that the majority. The vast majority of mm-hmm. um, country singers today are all crossover artists. That's like true. They, they're all and they pop want country. To be. They want. And that's the goal is she to be was a crossover. Like, no, I don't want to be. The weird part is too about her not liking a yeah. song that has done so well. Yeah. Um, I can completely relate to like I had did this one song that I was like when we recorded. I'm like oh, I sound like I'm screaming, <laughs> and I hated it. Like I mm-hmm. hated the song. And now I listen to it and I'm like, oh, I love that song. Oh, I'm so glad I did something different. Because it was like sometimes Mm. it's the best you can get too much in your own way. And I'm not saying Patsy did that, but it's just I can see how you can get too close to something and you get used to hearing what you think you should sound like Mm -hmm. and maybe doing. Because, I mean, I still think of her voice and you said this, too, that you were like, more than a country singer, she was such a torch singer. You know, she was that because her voice is haunting and beautiful and and really does like cross over genres even it, you know you don't have to like country to like patsy klein you know completely and so i think that was a gift really even though she didn't want to be a country singer now she still talked about today because she wasn't just a country singer completely i i mean that's so true that's so true about even by her. the people that love country but there's mm. so many people that don't it's not that they don't love it or not but it's just that her, well, her voice they like was all so transcending yeah again that it word of what we talk about yeah you know she was a person whose voice transcended boundaries you know yeah. she looked at herself as being in a box and that voice wouldn't let her no and that's exactly like i was walking today listening to her and i was and it was a hot day here in los angeles in january and i kept getting chills and i'm like oh she's so good like and just to hear that voice now Mm. 60 years later i know it's still relevant yeah crazy so the crazy thing is finally on a saturday night in 1957, on February 16th, 24-year-old Patsy Klein was invited. She met her dream. Mm. She was invited on the Grand Old Opry as a special guest on a half-hour segment. And um, in the dressing room with Roy Acuff, who was like a big, you know, Opry legend, um, she told him, this is my crowning moment in my career. It took me nine years, but I'm here. With a voice wow. like that, it took her nine years. Wow. But she didn't let it slip about what happened like nine years ago, back in 1948, when mm-hmm. they wouldn't call her back, mm-hmm. you know, after she auditioned. And so, you know, Charlie, her husband, or I don't know if they got married, well, they're about to get married. Um, but, you know, Charlie was drafted into the Army. And because of her stardom and pop crossover uh, appeal, um, you know, it really changed the entire perception of women in country music because mm. of Patsy. And she didn't have to beg for any performances. She was a star, and they begged her to come and perform. Wow. And she and, she and Charlie, I don't think, were, were um, married then. And so um, 
the the amazing thing is she was asked during this time in 1957 to appear on Ed Sullivan and she couldn't do it. <laughs> we talk about Ed Sullivan every time. I show. know. And, and <laughs> he was amazing. Yeah. But they she couldn't appear on there because she had an agreement with Arthur Godfrey. Oh, really? So she could not. She had signed with Arthur and she couldn't do it wow. contractually. Oh, that sucks. I know. So her album was finally released with Walking, you know, After Midnight in August 1957 and it bombed. Really? The first album bombed, yes. It bombed. And a month later, right after her birthday, she and Pat, she and Charlie married. Um, but they didn't get a honeymoon because she was still working on the road trying to earn money, and he was still in the Army. Mm. Um, and so they didn't really have a honeymoon, and she didn't make any money off of walking. Um, she, said, she would say, I have the recognition, and I want the money that goes along with it. You know, yeah. she, she she was frustrated. And she's been asking for that at this point for years. Exactly. So she was frustrated, if you can imagine, at having a hit record and not the money to make from it. And according to Charlie, many years later, that Patsy should have been a wealthy woman from the way everything was going as mm -hmm. a result of Walking After Midnight. Mm -hmm. And he said that McCall, you know, deducted every conceivable expense such as her trips to California to record. But yeah, that's exactly what Lisa Lopez said. Right. Hotels, meals, phone calls from her royalty pool. And he said she was left with virtually nothing. And to make matters worse, according to um, Charlie, McCall controlled everything that she did in the studio. Mm. And she made very little money, he said, from TV shows and road dates together he said it just wasn't enough to live off of mm -hmm. i mean the bright the bright spot in all this is that she gave birth to her first child in 1958 like you know a few weeks before her birthday um but you know the sad thing because she and charlie were so young their marriage was very tumultuous mm -hmm. one minute she'd want to leave him then two minutes later, she'd tell you how much she was in love with him. She'd come to work with a black eye. That's insane. She'd have him arrested. Then she'd go and bail him out. And I think it's because Charlie, when he drank, he became a different person. Mm -hmm. You know, they were rough on each other. I mean, she was a fighter. Mm -hmm. Like you said, she was ballsy. So yeah. she'd fight back. She'd take anything he dished out, but she had no problem standing up to him. And she'd mm -hmm. embarrass him in front of everyone because, but they were also broke, you know. Mm. Um, even if and exhausted, like I mean, she exactly. was on the road all the time, exactly. and you know, trying to pursue this dream, mm. raising a child, like being in this tumultuous relationship. I mean, that's true. There's a lot, and and the which I think we all. kind of forget all the time. Basic children under thirty. <laughs> that's true. That is children having children. <laughs> I mean, she worked like a dog, and mm -hmm. like you said, did all that. So. Owen, who now in 1958 became head of uh, A&R for DECA in 1958, he really never lost faith in her and he still was her producer. Hmm. And so he went to his bosses and said, let's sign her directly. You know, can we try and get her out of McCall's deal? Um, but it was quickly shot down, hmm. I read, because the VP of sales pointed out that after walking after midnight she didn't have a hit so we don't know mm. if she got staying power 
So we're not going to sign her directly. So he brought her into the studio to keep recording for uh, McCall them on January 59. And it was pivotal because for the first time, Bradley bought in, brought in the Jordanaires, a golf, gospel quartet, mm. which provided backup for Elvis Presley. And mm. they would go on to back her on her biggest hit. They are known for providing background vocals for Elvis Presley in all of his live appearances and recordings from 1956 to 1972. The recording session for I'm Counting on You and I Was the One was the first session Presley did with the Jordanaires in 1956. Besides their work with Elvis and Patsy Cline, the group also provided background vocal work to such rock and country luminaires such as Johnny Cash, Dolly Parton and Ricky Nelson. She wasn't keen on them, by the way, but she did. She wasn't keen on anything. I know. <laughs> she was like, mm, no. And one of the guys, Gordon Stoker, you know, one of the members of the group who had been a longtime member, um, said that from time to time, Patsy would bring personal problems into the studio mm. that she had with Charlie. And he said that she and Charlie would have fights. And this is funny. I did laugh at this part. Not the part that she would have fights with Charlie. And she would come in with bruised or with a black eye, he would say. And they said they would just kind of look at her and they never asked her questions. And she never directly said what happened. But he said this one time, she would say, she said, me and Charlie had a, had a row. And he said, we'd ask her, he didn't hit you, did, she, did he? And she had a black eye at that point. And she'd reply, well, somebody did. <laughs> and I love that. I love that. Well, somebody did, Gordon. Um, and when little, little Julie was nine months old, she was pregnant again, and she suffered a miscarriage Aww. in 1959. And so, but they decided, Patsy and Charlie moved to Nashville in that year. And when she got to Nashville, she hired Randy Hughes to manage her, which was a great decision on her part. Because mm. Randy really tried to get her out of the contract that she had with McCall mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people have asked like why didn't Randy just hire a lawyer to break it but um, according to one, the writer of um, Walking After Midnight there were no loopholes mm -hmm. and that when um, you know when Passy asked for advances against earned on royalties he just secured them with a lot of options which yeah really did a lot of, secured a lot of loopholes mm -hmm. at that time. And Charlie said that during the whole time with Four Star, that Patsy only earned $900 from Walking After Night. That's insane. And her other recordings combined. Wow. Isn't that crazy? It's so crazy and the sad part, it's not even surprising. And you know what an interesting mm -hmm. part of the story, and mm -hmm. I know it's not all, not all, but the ones that you hear the stories of the worst contracts are like it's women isn't it <laughs> women. and she was the first yeah and also like early on with different i mean sam was luckily a businessman but he dealt with his share of things but he yes, approached he it like a businessman mm -hmm. and, and he was savvy enough to just keep insisting on it and yeah. they gave it to him they relented mm -hmm. they didn't relent with her no, and it's just, it was up. kind of the same. It was the same with uh, Lisa. Yeah. It's just interesting. Crazy. Because we didn't even put that connection. I, I'm just noticing it right now. It's 
tried to get change the contract. Lisa Lopez. Yeah, Lisa Lopez. <laughs> no, sorry, Lisa. Lisa Lopez. No, no, no. Um, Lisa. Yes, Lisa Lopez. God, I know. It's weird the that it's like bizarrely you. similar. Like yeah. they and they, you know, different genres. So different time periods. Different times, She's really in similar. Lisa's in the, you know, the 1990s. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Patsy's dream came true in January 1960. She was officially made a member of the Grand Old Opry. Um, and in her press release, she closed it with her philosophy as a country music singer. And she said, I don't want to get rich. I just want to live good. I love that. I love it. Now, it's funny, and I looked it up, and I, I didn't put it in the outline here, is that at the Grand Ole Opry, when you become a member, there's certain little things, like you have, you get a certain amount of performances that you're paid for a year. Oh, okay. You know. Um, and the wonderful thing about Patsy, because of Walking After Midnight and the pop crossover, she had a strong following who were quite vocal in their approval of her, mm. and she had a teen following, you know. Yeah, which is always... Isn't that If awesome? you can get a teen following I at know. any time in your life, that's a good thing. We'll take it. rock baby Yeah, teens, rock right? babies love this. I know. Please, <laughs> learn <laughs> something on. about the, uh, the old-timer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the ones who know. She received huge amounts of mail, which I loved about her, and she read and answered her fan mail, and autograph photos with personal messages. She was yeah, mostly I, popular with GIs. Well, I heard that that she was always like writing um, fan fan mail. I heard this one thing about her writing a letter from. She was writing it from a plane, mm -hmm. and she was saying that she was. Uh, using up all the stationery and she's like I don't care how hard they work me I'll use up their stationery awesome? but like even commented it on the letter to be like I'm using up but she was really good at at uh, telegrams and writing yes. and responding with her fans she and loved it she loved it she she had worked to get there and she was so appreciative and then hallelujah something finally happened in 1960 her four-star agreement. Her agreement with Four Star ended, and she signed directly with Decca Records, mm. which, you know, things turned around for her financially. But in 1960, though, that same year, things got really bad between her and Charlie because Charlie used to bitch at Patsy before she'd leave to go on the road. Mm -hmm. And then he'd call and bitch with her on the road. And usually... When he was drinking, it, you know, he wanted to know when she was coming home. So money was still a problem for them. Mm -hmm. um, and at times it was sad because she would beg the Opry officials to let her go and perform so she could, you know, get some money from them, mm -hmm. you know, for the small amount that they paid. Um, you know, because it was a make or break time for her to pay the rent or the phone and, you know, gas bill. And, um, you know... It was funny. I love this. I love this story. One time, someone introduced her as the biggest female star of country music, and she said, I'd rather be a beloved wife than a woman bigger than life. Wow. I've heard a lot of entertainers say you have all the loving in the world when you walk out on that stage and you feel the beat of that applause. But she said, but hell, when you leave that stage and the spotlight goes off, that goddamn applause don't help any when you're laying in that bed being ignored. No hit record is worth that. Wow. 
That's what she said during that time, I know. And then another song came her way called I Fall to Pieces in November. Hmm. She said it was ridiculous. That's the song. She was like, that song is ridiculous. I hate that goddamn song. <laughs> she said, I'm never going to sing it. And at the ses- as the session approached, you know, the studio session, um, there was some words flying between her and Owen. They fought mm-hmm. about it. And she wouldn't record it. She never told them why. But she, you know, and she didn't ask them to make revisions either. And she and Owen argued and argued about it up until November 16th. Um, and uh, against her will, at seven months pregnant, while seven months pregnant, she recorded I Fall to Pieces. Mm-hmm. And she and Owen argued about it quite a bit, but they struck a deal because she liked another song. So Owen said, look, if you do this song, if you record it, I'll let you do that song that you like Mm. that we don't really know about anymore. And the session was done the old fashioned way with um, the singer and the musicians, kind of like what we talked about with Sam, Mm. the singer and the musicians were together live. And she sat in the middle of the studio on a stool with a microphone and a music stand with the Jordanaires on the left hand side. And when the time came to roll the tape, Bradley lowered the studio lights to kind of set the mood. And as they listened to the playback, Patsy finally told Owen, I think I found out who I am, Owen. Wow. And what we've been looking for. And he said, like, what do you mean? And she said, we don't have to search for my identity anymore. Listening to this song, Mm. this is it. We're doing it right. She loved her voice and, you know, that song. So go listen to I Fall to Pieces because she really found her stride. Uh You know, and in January, right after that, she gave birth to her son, Randolph, who she called Little Randy, after her half-brother. People think it was named after Randy Hughes, her manager, Mm. but not the case. And then right after that, um, you know, nine days later, um, I Fall to Pieces was released, but it received limited airplay. It didn't do well at first, Michelle. Wow, that's that's nuts. It's so know. funny to think these songs that you've heard forever, you know? I know. Like, all you have to do is hear the title and the songs oh, in your head, you know? I know. That's awesome. I know. Um, a DJ in Columbus, Ohio, which is a pop station, again, much to her chagrin, probably, um, began playing it. Um, and the momentum... Momentum mm. built on two levels, the countryside and the pop side. Mm. And then Decca was like, oh, shoot, let's start a heavy promotion um, campaign. And it started popping both. It's topped. I'm sorry, I said mm. popping. <laughs> <laughs> it was popping, but it topped both the billboard mm-hmm. and the pop charts, you know. And sadly, even with the birth of a son, a hit record, you know, it was the best of times for her professionally mm-hmm. and personally with the little kid, but their marriage was still plagued with drama and she was very unhappy with Charlie's spending, mm. you know. Um, and his thoughtlessness, according to her, his verbal and physical abusiveness. I mean, he was still very young, they both were. Mm-hmm. And she was often in divorce mode with mm-hmm. him. And she complained about his drinking to her friends and. You know, and, um, you know, he left her alone while, you know, while he stayed out to the wee hours of the night, um, which kind of goes back to that line where she talked about, you know, laying in the bed by herself mm-hmm. and feeling ignored. Poor Patsy. Um, but here's something really 
and we're going to go into it because we went into it with Lisa Lopez. Mm -hmm. In April of that year, 1961, she had her first premonitions of death, which she would relate to having again and again. Mm -hmm. And this is what the premonition was. She had a premonition, and on a Delta Airlines um, flight, on their stationery, she wrote a will. And she, because she was having problems with Charlie, mm -hmm. she wrote it and she said, to whom it may concern, making known her wishes for her children's care and her education and their education, and to whom she'd leave her money, clothing, jewelry, and furniture, all inventoried in detail on this stationery. Wow. And how and where she wished to be put away, okay? Mm -hmm. She went so far as to have the will witnessed. She then stashed it away, later, later informing her mom, this is going to be important later on, mm -hmm. of its existence. So her mom knew of the, its existence. And Patsy's will made plain that also she, although she expected Charlie to be in her life, he would not be enriched by her success. He'd get only whatever car she was driving at the time. Wow. So thanks to the success of I Fall to Pieces, Decca sent Patsy on a promotional tour alone, which was a first for her. Normally she would tour with like many acts. Mm. And the sad thing is that those who knew Patsy and Charlie well pinpointed this time as another problem spot oh. you know um and they felt like the problems became insurmountable you know wow. because though proud of her accomplishments patsy's stardom was a blow to charlie's ego mm -hmm. you know i think that happens a lot more mm -hmm. than people realize again back totally. to you know you fall in love with someone because of what they are and then you ultimately mm -hmm. that's the demise of your relationship as well i know especially if you're a woman mm -hmm. and you know it's like the roles are kind of being reversed. I shouldn't say that, but no, it's but true. it definitely, especially back then. Yeah. I mean, now it's becoming more equal, and it still right. isn't. <laughs> totally, totally. It's, uh, I I could see that being difficult, and I mean, I think it's hard too in any relationship, especially when people are doing similar things. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, mean I wouldn't care if someone being successful me in either. a partnership but not I everybody don't, I don't can think deal your with husband that. would care <laughs> he'd be like good <laughs> yeah that's he'd be a good thing it. <laughs> ben wouldn't care but um you know it's funny this this is an interesting story because around this time her hometown honored her by having a patsy klein day and that night her whole family everyone went on about how proud winchester was this is at the ceremony Mm -hmm. um, about how proud they were to have Patsy as a native, you know, and as a citizen. And when it came time, time for Patsy to respond, there was a loud uh, round of applause. And, and this is a story that came with a few people because um, no one was prepared for what Patsy was going to say. Mm -hmm. Because Patsy, you know, was all dolled up. She surveyed the audience. And after a long pause, she said, I'll tell you sons of bitches, this dinner ain't enough. It's all very nice for you to recognize me now that I've made it. 
But where were you when my family needed your help? Where were you when I needed your recognition? Nowhere to be found. In fact, you laughed at me behind my back. Well, you all can go to hell. <laughs> and Patsy, not forgetting her key to the city, stormed out. So she took the key to the city and stormed wow. out. Like, screw you. Oh, there's so many great Amazing. stories of her. I love it. I love it. Amazing. So in June, you know, coming back from the mall, it was a Wednesday afternoon. It was in the afternoon. It was still light out. Um, she was coming back from the mall with her brother, Sam, who was driving, and they were involved in a head-on collision. Oh, yeah. You know, Patsy said that she went through the windshield and back. Ooh. She cut her face, mm -hmm. um, and that whatever it was, it missed her eyes, like the, maybe the glass missed her mm -hmm. eyes by a quarter of an inch. Uh, her right hip was knocked out of its socket. And ligaments were are pulled, you know, she said, and her right wrist was fractured. Her brother had a, a hole punched in his chest as big as a dime, as she said, about three inches deep with a few cuts and bruises. And the, one, the woman driving the other car broke all her teeth and jaw um, and cut her lips and, and chin. The sad part is that the woman's... Um, cousin and the cousin's little six-year-old boy died mm. but it wasn't sam patsy's brother's fault mm -hmm. it was actually the woman who hit them she was trying to dodge a, a truck or something like that and didn't patsy have to get all sorts of reconstructive surgery completely yeah because they they said that it was like torn down to the bone like oh her face oh yeah the scarring on her oh. forehead would cause her to wear wigs for the rest of her life wow you know and during this time sadly enough but great actually this is actually great news you know charlie was at a bar and he met an up up and coming songwriter named willie nelson wow. and they hung out and willie gave him a demo for a song and that song would become crazy <laughs> willie nelson wrote crazy yeah that's isn't amazing. that awesome it's amazing you know and um she returned to the studio on august 17th 1961 mm -hmm. um, two months after the car crash she was still bruised up and she returned to the studio to record crazy and she had her crutches against mm -hmm. the wall and she propped herself up against a stool and set up the microphone and did warm-ups for crazy mm -hmm. and she tried it and tried it but she was having a little problem I think probably because she was still in a lot of pain and that song is so um, mm -hmm. vocally um, rich. Mm -hmm. It's very vocally rich. And after about two hours, um, which was a lot for her, they were kind of ready to give up. And so she returned four days later on Monday, uh, August 21st. She cut the vocals for Crazy in one take. And that's uh -huh. the record you hear on the radio. Wow. That's the record you hear. Um, and she hit the road right after that. I mean, being bruised mm. up and scarred and... And like full face reconstruction. Oh, my God. You know, she needed the money, <sighs> they said. Yeah. And so Charlie had to take an extended leave from his job to kind of be at her side. Um, and she returned to the Opry to sing the song. And they released it on October. Um, and she made her first appearance at the Opry uh, 
five days later um, without crutches. Because the first time she went there on September 16th, she had crutches mm. since the accident. And, of course, Crazy came out and topped the country charts and peaked at, like, number nine on the pop. And when her second album, Patsy Cline Showcase with the Jordanaires, was dropped, like, climbed the charts this time. She really did well. Oh, wow. You know, and without kind of missing a beat, she, the Grand Ole Opry decided to go to New York and perform at Carnegie Hall, and that's what she did on uh, November 29th that year. And she appeared on Dick Clark's American Bandstand and Tennessee Ernie Ford's show, both on, like, NBC. ABC. And I know. Did I say that? I think you said NBC. Did I? I'm sorry. ABC. <laughs> that's, see, that's the skinny margarita with that Amaro Angelino. Um... <laughs> Sorry, ABC. Thanks, Michelle. <laughs> um, <laughs> around the time that her career was riding high again, she recorded She's Got You on uh, December 1961. According to the Ellis Nassau biography, Honky Tonk Angel, the intimate story of Patsy Cline, songwriter Hank Cochran remembers calling Cline and telling her that he'd just written her next number one hit. She told him to come over to her house with a bottle of liquor and play it on the guitar for her and friend Dottie West, who was visiting for the afternoon. Klein was emotionally moved by its lyrics and loved the song so much that she learned it that night, calling up her manager and producer to sing it to them over the phone. At her next session, she recorded it. This was a rare instance in which Patsy and her producer, Owen Bradley, agreed. Throughout many of her recordings, Patsy and Owen often disagreed with each other's choice of material. This time, they both agreed they had a hit. Um, but this time she was feeling, so when you hear that song, you hear someone who was feeling a lot of pain mm -hmm. on both sides of the microphone, you know, probably mm -hmm. pain from the yeah. accident, you know, because she was back to feeling a lot of disillusionment mm -hmm. and loneliness uh, that she sang about in that song. Yeah, you know. the the crazy part about, I think, so many great artists, it's like if you took away all the tragedy, took away all the pain, mm. would they have been as great? That's a good point. And that's, it's just because like there was so much pain in life in her voice. Mm. And it's like if she didn't have that, would she have that voice? I know. Because it spoke a lot, especially in She's Got You, they said. Um, because... And she's got you. She said to someone, I've become a captive of my own ambition. Mm. And wow. I've become a captive of my own ambition. And it didn't help that Charlie's drinking mm -hmm. was back to, he was, well, he never stopped. Yeah. But he drank his misery away is what she said. And I'm working my misery away. Wow. You know, she said his hug is his beer in a frosted mug wow. and I lie in bed wanting and waiting and just one day it just all got to be too much around this time for her mm -hmm. and she began shaking and crying uncontrollably and she went to the doctor who informed her that you know you're in the throes of a nervous breakdown Missy and he put her to bed for like two weeks wow you know sad huh captive of my own ambition and be become so line. lonely how you can have so mm. much kids husband and the loneliness i um, think that bizarrely 
happens more often than you think. You know, you're driving so much for this one thing. Mm -hmm. Then you get that one thing, and you're like, oh. Right. It might not be. She wanted Charlie, too, and it just Mm -hmm. didn't work out that way. You know, but she knew she had to snap out of it very quick because Mm -hmm. they needed to raise money. And so she kind of, you know, put a damper on that and just kept it moving, Mm -hmm. you know. And she had optim- reason to be optimistic. I mean, She's Got You was released January 1962, right after the um, nervous breakdown. And it went to number one again on the country chart and peaked on, at number 14 on the pop chart. Wow, that's not bad. I know, right? And with back-to-back successes, and now that she's dealing directly with Decca Records, she finally bought her big dream house in Nashville mm-hmm. that she always wanted. You know, her closets were filled to the brim with slacks and formal gowns and Western costumes, boots and spike heels and a sparkling rhinestone tiara. (laughs) She had a collection of wigs because, uh, like we said, she had a lot of scarring and had Mm. to wear wigs. But she would cook and invite her best buds, you know, Dottie West, Loretta Lynn, and Brenda Lee would come over and they'd all laugh and just have a girl's night in a lot of time that's awesome and pivotal to all this in 1962 in may randy bought a green that green white piper comanche airplane in missouri and he considered the number the id number n7000p a good omen because someone said seven's your lucky number which we'll find out is probably not true Mm -hmm. Um, and Patsy Coline, this is awesome. She co-headlined um, a concert in June 15th at the Hollywood Bowl with Johnny Cash. Oh, wow. You know, it's billed the Shower of Stars. And um, it was the first of like ever, like the largest folk and country and Western bluegrass performance to be held on the, on the West Coast. Wow. George Jones was there. June Carter and her family were there. Look up, look up right behind you. Fabulous <gasps> Johnny Cash show, June Carter and the Carter family. Wow. April 21st. Waterloo, Iowa. Wow. For all you rocket babies, it's a Carl poster Perkins. I have. A fabulous Johnny Cash. Yeah, poster. there he is with the guitar. And there's a little insert picture of June right there. Mm-hmm. Carl Perkins was there. That's awesome. Wow. Thank you for that. I love it. Johnny Cash was amazing. But um, here's another thing. In July, like a month later, um, she and her best friend Dottie were hanging out, Dottie West. And, you know, Patsy, throughout her whole career, kept scrapbooks. You know, she kept scrapbooks about her career. And she absolutely cherished those scrapbooks. Mm -hmm. And out of the blue, she gave them to Dottie. And she said, don't argue with the client. Because Dottie was like, are you, what are you doing? She's like, don't argue with the client. You know, she said, anyway, they ain't going to do me no good because I'll never live to see 30. And Dottie was like, my God, don't talk like that. And later on in her house, she, she insisted that Dottie take the scrapbooks. Wow. Dottie took the scrapbooks, which she kept to the end of her life, by the way. And she said she sat on the kitchen table because she was having money problems. And she thumbed through the pages just looking through them. And she said she started to cry for both for both of us, talking about her and Patsy, because 
She said, I wondered what on earth possessed Patsy to give up her cherished scrapbooks. Mm. She said she also found a piece of paper folded up with a check for $75. The little note saying, I know you're having a hard time and that you're not because you're not working. And I know you can use this to pay the rent. Love, Patsy. And she gave her a check for $75. In addition to being known as a close friend of Patsy Cline, Dottie West became one of country music's most influential and groundbreaking female artists. Dottie had numerous hits throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s. On August 30, 1991, West's car stalled on the way to her scheduled performance at the Grand Ole Opry. Dottie's 81-year-old neighbor, George, spotted her on the side of the road and offered to drive her to the Opry for her scheduled appearance. Frantic about getting to the Opry on time, West urged George to speed up. George lost control of his vehicle while exiting the Opryland exit. The car leapt off the ramp, went airborne, and hit the central division. West did not believe that she was as badly injured as her neighbour had been, and like Patsy so many years before, she wrongly insisted that her neighbour be treated. Even the police officers who responded to the scene incorrectly reported that Dottie did not seem harmed at the time. However, she suffered a ruptured spleen and a lacerated liver. Her spleen was removed that Friday, and the following Monday she underwent two more surgeries to stop her liver from bleeding. These ultimately proved fatal, and Dottie died during her third operation on September 4th, 1991, at the age of 58. So, her third album was released, Sedimental of Yours, um, and she's got you was on it and it did well and she did see her 30th birthday um on september 8th and on september 9th her and she and charlie hosted a big party in her dream house and here's another thing she did at the party she took Dottie aside and she said look i found me this little hiding place behind one of the bricks in the fireplace Dottie, in the music room and I've been putting money in there every week. She said, don't you dare tell a soul. You know, you're the only other person that knows that. And she said, I just want you to know about it in case anything happens to me. Wow. And Dottie's like, uh, there you go again with that talk. And, you know, she was like, why do you feel like you have to hide money? But she mm -hmm. did. She said, I'm going to hide it. But you see, she kept talking about these self-fulfilled prophecies or both i don't know well because again and we've talked about this in previous shows especially yeah. lisa lopez what is who are we to say if it's a self-fulfilling prophecy or if it's destiny like how do you not know or if it really is the message that your time's up because a lot of stories when you hear of people about to pass and not just famous people like start to ask anyone that's been close to someone that's mm -hmm. died even if it's been suddenly right. often there's weird little things that happen i think maybe there is an internal clock knowing i don't know obviously because mm -hmm. i don't know but i'm just saying i don't, don't necessarily <laughs> i don't want to know either but i i don't know if it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because mm -hmm. I really do think you go when you're ready to go because some people right. live through, they can fall out of a plane and, you know, land on a banana and somehow right. live. And then someone like Travis Barker. And, but some people can trip and then they die. Right. You just never know, right. you know? So I don't, right. I don't really know. It's, it's, 
it's just weird. I, mm. I, just, I don't even know what to say. No, it's about super it. eerie. I think it's. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I know you don't even know what to say about it because she really and there more to come up. But um, so a couple of months later, from she's got you at in after September 9th, she received a lot of year-end awards um, such as Billboard's favorite female artists and you know Cashbox, which was like a Billboard back then, gave her you know awards. And even though she you know, had a lot of these awards, she still suffered from that car accident. Mm -hmm. You know, she had frequent headaches. Well, she had also said after that fidgety. car accident that she never wanted to drive in a car again. Yes. She did say something like that. That's true. You know, and um, it's just sad that she had to keep that band around, you know, a band around her hairline um, to keep her stitches in place from the scars. Mm. So from November to 28th, she was booked, which was a dream for her, is to be booked at a casino in Las Vegas. It was called the mm -hmm. Met Casino, which was owned by the Sahara Hotel um, on the Strip. And it's sad because one night after that show, one of her shows, she was talking to her friend Don Hecht, who co-wrote Walking on Midnight, Walking After Midnight. And he said that she started to in this ominous tone. He said she, she talked softly about her life and things she had to take care of when she got home. Mm -hmm. He said it was like she was going through the eerie motions of settling accounts up. Wow. He said she did say, you know, hell, all my life has been uphill. Even now I try to do everything without stepping on or hurting anyone. And even when it meant hurting me, you know, all that's going to, you know, but all that's going to stop, you know, experience is a, a hard teacher, she said. She gives the test first and the lessons come after, which is true. Mm -hmm. And Gordon Stoker, one of the Jordanaires, pointed out that from some of the strange things that he said, Pat, he said, he said, I didn't think she was planning on being around long, he said. And that, mm -hmm. you know, it went back to a couple of things he said. During crazy, he said she walked in on her crutches, you know, after the mm -hmm. accident. And she said, fellas, the third time is charm. And he said he asked her, what in the world are you talking about? You've got a, a cat's nine lives. And she says that they all laughed. And Patsy got to talking about an illness when she was 10. That's the rheumatic mm -hmm. fever, fever, free fever. And actually, I read 13. And about the car wreck, she survived and said again, the third time is a charm. The third time I go, it'll be all she wrote. Wow. That's what she said. And after the Vegas shows, you know, Patsy's mom said that Patsy spoke quite seriously about, you know, divorcing Charlie and had an attorney draw up trust papers for the children. Wow. And Charlie refuted that, you know, claim. He said it didn't happen, you know, she wasn't about to divorce him. And in 1963, she went back into the studio and recorded more songs, included Faded Love and Sweet Dreams, mm -hmm. you know. And so, okay, so the backstory. So that was February when she recorded those songs. A little bit of a backstory. A few weeks before, you know, February, at the end of January, there was this Kansas City, City's most popular country DJ at the time, uh, Jack Welsley, which is the Cactus Jack uh, call, 
um, died in a car accident, and he left mm -hmm. behind a wife and two kids. He left behind a wife, two sons, and very little money. So all the country stars at the time, you know, because it was a very powerful market in Kansas City, mm -hmm. organized a benefit concert for Cactus Jack, and which would take place on Sunday, March 3rd, 1963. And among the performers was her manager, Randy Hughes. His, his father-in-law was a big uh, Opry legend. You know, he performed well at the, his name was Cowboy Copas. <laughs> And he was an Opry star, and he performed as well as, you know, Hawk Shaw, Hawk, and somebody named, I like these names, by the yeah. way. Um, which, who, both these guys arrived with Patsy and Randy in Randy's airplane. And Hawkins, who hated flying, hated flying, flew in with them, but he decided to, to purchase a commercial airline ticket um, to fly back on that, mm. because he thought maybe the plane was too small or whatever. And so Dottie West performed too, her good pal. And so they performed three shows in one day. That's the thing, it was like really back-to-back yeah. -back shows. And ominously, Patsy closed the last show that she did that day with her favorite song from some of the recording sessions, which is, I'll Sell My Ship Alone. Mm. So, I mean, you know, they stayed the night in a hotel, and then on March 4th, it was really cold, there was a lot of rainstorms throughout the evening, and they couldn't fly out that next day. Um, Patsy had a cold, and she was just exhausted. Um, also, that night, I think they were planning on flying back on the 5th, um, but one of the, that night, Billy Walker, who was one of the performers who had scheduled to come back with, he was scheduled to come back with Randy and Patsy and, um, you know, Randy's father-in-law, called up. Hackshaw, because he mm. knew he had a commercial airline ticket. Mm -hmm. And he's like, listen, Hawkins, my dad had a heart attack. And he says, they don't expect my dad to live. Um, and Randy doesn't know when we'll be able to leave because of bad weather, if we'll be able to leave tomorrow or not. And he says, I got to get home as soon as possible. Can I talk you into going back with Randy and Patsy on oh. his airplane? and let me have that airline ticket. And Hawkins met him up with him and he agreed and he told him, he gave him the ticket and said, kid, I wouldn't do this for anybody else and I hope your dad pulls through, by the way. And another oh. crinkle, I know, this is heartbreaking. It's just, it's like. I know, you can't stop it. It's a runaway train. But it's also. Of sadness. I mean, it really shows the timing though, like bad i know if your time is up your time's up i know like final destination I, I know and so another crinkle happened which is patsy's son little randy was sick with a fever and she really needed to take care of business mm. with that lawyer that she wanted to talk to about so Dottie was like look we're driving back why don't you come back with us that was Dottie and her husband mm -hmm. and patsy agreed she did and about 10, late, 10 minutes later, they were all going to leave. Patsy and Dottie and Dottie's husband met at the elevator. They all got in with their bags, and Dottie pushed the button. And when the doors opened to the lobby, Patsy leaned over uh, to pick up her suitcase and then suddenly blurted out, forget it. I'll <sighs> wait it out with Randy. I think I'll get home quicker. And in addition, Hackshaw Hawkins, who hated flying, was going to ride back with them too. 
And he decided no because he said, we're going to beat you home being in this airplane. Mm-hmm. Wow. So Adati attempted to change Patsy's mind, you know, at right by the elevator. And she said, Patsy, you know, I don't want you riding in that small pl- airplane. It might crash. And Patsy said, Hoss, don't worry about me because when it comes my time to go, I'm going. And if that little bird goes down, I'll go down with it. They hugged and kissed, and that was their last goodbye. Mm-hmm. Um, Randy, Patsy, Hackshaw, and Cowboy took off at 1.30 uh, p.m. on uh, March 5th. And it mm-hmm. went smoothly, and the flight you know, distance between Nashville and Kansas was like 500 mm-hmm. like miles. And they stopped in um, Tennessee in this place called Dyersburg just off of the Mississippi River mm-hmm. to refuel and Randy landed um, and he called his wife and he asked her to call the the field that they would be landing into in Virginia and let them know to turn on the runway lights. And then they taxied off at 6.07 p.m. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, they think that, you know, some 85 miles west of Nashville, they ran into some dense clouds over mm-hmm. the river and south of the Kentucky Lake, and heavy rain was rocking the plane, and witness report, witnesses reported seeing a plane turn in one direction, then another direction, and flying low, and flying high, um, and as Randy made his ascent, aviation experts think that Randy flew right into it like a dense cloud, and he panicked, um, probably. I have a question. Yeah. Did they have air traffic control at that time? Yes. Okay. Yes, because you know what? He had to flag when he was going to be flying at the air at the airport mm-hmm. that he flew out of. And they had to let him know. I think they did. Okay. I could be like wrong. obviously not to the degree it is now, but Yeah, I could be wrong. I mean, um Well they probably had to have something. Yeah. I think what he experienced is what JFK Jr. experienced. Mm. Spatial disorientation, they call it. Um, It's like a graveyard spiral. Um, And if you're not trained, which sadly enough, JFK wasn't enough, right? Mm -hmm. Um, To read the instrument panel, you know, poor Randy tried making sense of like the numbers and the letters and near dark. It was dark Mm -hmm. at this point. And then they said the trees become became started becoming at them. Yeah. And that Randy worked at the wheel and you know, but the plane swerved violently and that airplane tore into the trees and sawed off the tops in such a way that it was certain that it was flying upside down. So I mean he must have pulled on the liver lever not knowing that he was upside down because they said yeah. JFK Jr. did the same thing. And when he pulled on the lever it went into a death spiral so one wing and then another ring wing was ripped off the remnants of the plane and its tightly and you know packed passengers bounced and skidded the tree line oh that's a horrible death yeah um there was no way out and they said that the plane went straight into the ground um and that the road that randy was looking to um land his plane only laid was like not even one mile away, but everybody died. Wow, that's so sad. I know. There's a discrepancy that exists in the exact time of the crash. You know, and nobody oh, yeah, knows. Interesting. Yeah, I know. Patsy's watch stopped at 620, and Randy's 
at 625, but we had Gabby do it at 620 because it was Patsy's story. Yeah, that's just, that's so creepy. I know, it is. One of the people who came to the crash site late that night said he wanted to turn back because it was so ghastly. Mm. He said the engine lay at the bottom of a five foot, six foot wide crater that was filled with water. And he said the explosion people had heard was not from a gasoline explosion because there was no fire. Oh, wow. But it was the sound of the plane's impact. Oh. And it was all twisted metal and pieces oh, of body. So awful. I know. There was more of Patsy's body, they said, left intact than there oh. were of the others because he saw people picking through the wreckage. That's so awful. That I people know. were picking through the wreckage. Oof. A civil defense uh, official. Um, saw people picking through the wreckage. wreckage. Um, but somebody asked him if uh, whether all four bodies had been located, and he said there's not m enough to count. They're all in small pieces. Ah, I know. And that beautiful little white dress that Patsy <laughs> had wore with the rhinestone accent that she wore at the last mm -hmm. show in Kansas City was never found, um, nor were her shoes uh, Randy's money bag was found. Somebody stole that. Wasn't found. <sighs> I'm sorry. And that a, reportedly a local woman who came to the scene with her baby in her arms stole it. Who would uh, do that? I know. I'd be like, afraid just, something was going to happen to me. I'd be terrified of ghosts. Also, I would never me even too. think of ever stealing, period, or off a dead body. That's true. That's true. Ugh. I mean, Randy was 35. Cowboy was 49. Hackshaw was 41 and Patsy was 30. Oh. Um, so I did read that they filed a lawsuit against the um, insurance company mm -hmm. and they all got like $33,000 to each of them and 15000 for the plane with the insurance company. Oh, that's nothing. 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 So oh. as, I know, God. So as per her instructions, you know, Charlie brought Patsy home for a one night to the house that she loved so much. Mm -hmm. You know, um, he had her gold finished casket. So she got a casket that's gold finished placed in front of the now draped picture window of the living room. And, um, he put a pack picture of Patsy on top of it. Um, but he was very distraught mm -hmm. and people were really worried that he was going to try and kill himself. Um, one of Patsy's friends, Pearl Butler said that, you know, she had been in Winchester a few months before visiting um, her own mom mm -hmm. and said that, um, Patsy said, everyone wants me to sing for nothing. They think they owe me. I want you both to remember this. Now this is her 30th, birth, 30th time, 30th mm -hmm. place on this earth. I want you to remember this because one day you'll be able to tell, tell it. The time, the next time I go to Winchester, Everyone in that town will know that Patsy Klein has been there. And Pearl said that when she recalled that on March 10th, the day of Patsy's funeral, um, it just made gifts, like chills go up and down her spine. You know, that was in 1963, mm -hmm. and in 1962 she had had such a monumental career year. Yeah. And she even, she did say... It was something, I heard her actually say this, her, uh, it was recorded of her mm -hmm. saying it, that she had, um, 
1962 was such a great year. Like, what mm-hmm. could 1963 bring? Like, it couldn't top that year. Right. And then she died only a few months in. Wow. Maybe she was right. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to say here that 1963 was a very grim year. Mm. You know, it was very just one of the most grimmest and pivotal years in, like, history. I mean, besides the death of Patsy, um, Medgar Evers, the civil rights pioneer, was assassinated during this time. Sylvia Plath committed suicide. Um, this Buddhist monk set him set himself on fire to protest the South Vietnam War. Um, the three little girls, the Birmingham uh, Birmingham church bombing of the three little girls happened this mm-hmm. year, and JFK died. Wow, you know. It's crazy. Um, So months after the crash, different items of the passengers were turned over to the Country Hall of Fame. And Patsy's Confederate flag, which was a rebel soldier, um, had a cigarette lighter on it. This kind of made me feel a certain way, Michelle. You know, Mm -hmm. a certain way about Patsy, I should say. And the fact that they have a give a had to give a lighter with the Confederate flag to a museum was just bothered. I, I know that, like you said, it was an obscure, not obscure, but it wasn't like it is now, country music. But I just thought it bothered me. It doesn't mm-hmm. change, you know, you know how I feel about her. I'm still a big fan, but it's a bit of a blemish. Yeah, I um, wonder why, out of all things, they could have donated. Like, right? She had many, many things. Why that? Yeah. I feel like it's also it's yeah. like a weird statement to be. Yeah, I wonder if she really understood the hurtful symbolism, mm. you know, of having a lighter with the Confederate flag, but maybe not based on the times. Um, but her, her mascara place and her, her case <laughs> and hairbrush were donated, and the beautician who dressed her, you know, dressed her as far as her wigs, mm-hmm. donated some of her wigs to the museum. Oh, wow. You know, and um, I wrote, assuming she had a trump card, Patsy's mom um, filed Patsy's handwriting will, the one she did on Mm. Delta Airline. Um, But Charlie had it overturned. Wow. You know, he did have a few problems, and he gave the kids to her very temporarily. Um, So, you know... But Charlie got everything, you know. Uh, he like, did. Again, like, I don't understand how in right mind... I mean, obviously, he wasn't in right mind and mourning and all that. Mm-hmm. But why would he do that? Like, why wouldn't you make sure that the kids were taken care of? And Well, that's probably why he, he wanted her to wanted her will to stay with him and he fought it because they're but like why, you're getting it. yeah why wasn't the will why wasn't Honored, the honor know, right? that was her will and her writing he fought it he fought it but uh-huh. you gotta think about the money he knew there was money mm-hmm. involved you know and also she was the mom of his kids um and he let the kids go live uh very briefly with the grandma with hilda mm-hmm. for a bit but before coming back because he had met and married an 18 year old singer who they said sounds like Patsy called Jamie Ryan. And he had a hard time accepting Patsy's death, you know. Mm-hmm. He kept the living room of the dream house just the way it was. Mm-hmm. Um, his closets, his, her clothing, I'm sorry, remained in the closets. 
He left her makeup, hairspray, and combs in the bathroom. And friends who visited the place had an eerie feeling that Patsy was still in the home. And, you know, when he drank heavily, he would play her records over and over and over again, you know, um, which led to friction, they said, naturally, with the new Mrs. Um, uh, Charlie Dick. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so what was she doing living in the house? Like, I just feel that would be so weird. She was 18. Well, I know. You're living in a shrine, though. Yeah. Like, I mean... They soon, they had a son in 1966, but they divorced by 1972. She couldn't Mm. take it. Mm -hmm. So he sold the house, not in 1972, but earlier than that, um, while still married to little Jamie, um, to another singer called Wilma, who was named Wilma Burgess. And this is creepy. Mm. Wilma found that stash of the rainy day money Mm -hmm. in the bricks of the fireplace. And then Charlie left behind an archive of acetate discs. So I guess that's records Mm -hmm. for the youngins out there of like her radio transcriptions, you know, such as her time on the Arthur, Arthur Godfrey talent um, and her live concert at the something called the Cimarron, which you can hear on Facebook. I mean, sorry, YouTube. <laughs> and um, Wilma swore that the house was haunted. Oh, yeah. I don't doubt that for a minute. Yeah, she would be upstairs and she said that the downstairs toilet would flush. Doors would open and slam. Nope. She'd be downstairs, and she said it would sound as if a bowling ball was rolling down the upstairs hall. Oh, that's so scary. She'd hear music as if Patsy was singing. Wow. So she finally sold it to a family who found her diary. And um, in 1963, 10 years after she died, she was the first woman inducted into the Country Country Music Hall of Fame by Johnny Cash. Wow. First woman, wow, in 1973 already. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. She wasn't. She hasn't never been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and she should That's be. Weird. I think she should be too. You know, the crash site in Tennessee is now a memorial site. Um, the property owner deeded it to the city, and they said you can visit the area anytime you want. And there's a boulder um, near that impact point. Um, there's a video of it on YouTube. The guy goes there, and is quiet and peaceful. Wow, is how he describes it. Um, and I remember Maya Angelou said, you know, it's wonderful that whenever Patsy Cline's name is mentioned, people's voices fall and they become right sentimental. Mm. And on her gravestone at Shenandoah Memorial Park is death cannot kill what never dies. Mm. And we're at the end. Wow. Huh. Such an incredible life, incredible voice. And, I know. I mean, I learned so much about her when I already knew her music and knew her voice and just the way she sang. Mm-hmm. And just, Uh-oh. oh, what a life. What a beautiful, tragic, short life. I know. I know. God bless her. I mean, you know, she did live that dream. She lived mm-hmm. her own dream. She didn't worry about nobody else's. So I guess that's the life and times of Miss Patsy Cline. The life and times. Yeah, she was amazing, an amazing legend that yeah. we'll keep listening to forever. Thank you, Patsy. Yes, and you can listen to uh, her playlist on our Spotify uh, page, which is Rockabye's. And with Mel and Shell, and um, you know, 
Here we go. Gosh, what a sad story. I know. It's what so a beautiful sad. life. Um, so here we go. Thanks for listening, Rock Babies. Thank you so much. Rock Rockabies. For behind the scenes looks or more information, or just to be part of the conversation, please join us at www.rockabiespodcast.com. Uh.